1: This is our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, what does it take to
2: sequence a genome? For a start, what is a genome? Every living thing has one, and it's a complete set of an organism's DNA, including its genes. Its basic building blocks are just four letters, or bases, A and T and C and G, And we humans each have more than three billion of them. The specific order of them creates the full set of instructions needed to make every cell, tissue and organ in your body. Sequencing a genome
1: is essentially working out the order of all those letters. And since genomes come in different sizes depending on who they belong to, the job is variously a big one
2: or an enormous one. Well-known companies such as 23andMe have specialised in sequencing human genomes for interested individuals. But for anything else, that service is provided by a company like New Zealand Genomics Limited. And Alison is off to the University of Otago
1: to get walked through the process of sequencing a genome. And her first stop is with geneticist Peter Dearden, who has some genomes that need sequencing. Becky Laurie is his first point of contact at New Zealand Genomics Limited.
3: In association with the Bioheritage National Science Challenge, we're sequencing the genome of the common wasp. So that's the wee wasp that disturbs school children's sandwiches when they're eating lunch and things. So we're trying to find novel ways to um, control wasps, and by sequencing the genome, we end up with a whole load of information that we can use to identify which genes we might target or any quirks about the biology that we don't yet know about that we might be able to attack. But we're also interested in sequencing the genomes of some other New Zealand pests. So we're starting to sequence the genome of the Argentine stem weevil that's with the Bioprotection Corps, who are interested in this beastie because it's a major pest in pasture, and it's controlled by a little parasitic wasp. So we're now trying to understand something about how the wasp and the, and the weevil interact and how they work together, and if there have been any implications of this wasp on the population genetics of the weevil. So as a start for that, we're going to sequence the genome of the weevil, and we're going to sequence the genome
2: of the wasp. What do you have to do to get a genome sequenced?
3: It's become much less of a big deal than it has been. So in the past, you you kind of hoped to find some overseas partner with loads and loads of money and a lot of time on their hands to do a lot of sequencing work. Now, actually, it's quite trivial, particularly for something like an insect genome, which is about an order of magnitude smaller than the human genome. So that means that we can actually sequence them relatively cheaply uh, right here in New Zealand and then start to distangle all of that information. The biggest problem for me isn't the sequencing itself. it's It's understanding the information and trying to understand a little bit about the oddities of these genomes so that you can start to publish them and talk to people about what they might do. So we're starting to get back to biology instead of just genome sequence. So for us, it's get the bugs, squash them, make some DNA, and send it off to the technicians at NZGL who know how to sequence the DNA.
0: So, Becky, where do you come into this? I'd probably bridge the gap between Peter and our researchers at NZGL. So Peter would come to me and say, um, Becky, this is something I'd like to achieve. These are my expectations around what I want to get from my project. How do I make this happen? And then I would take um, my knowledge of our services and say, well, Peter, we think you need to do X, Y and Z to be able to, to get your genome sequence and, and get some meaningful data from it to be able to address your specific biological questions.
2: So as part of your role, Becky, also saying one of the upshots of this is going to be you're going to have a whole lot of data, and so that getting the sequence done is actually just the first step. What are you going to do on the other side of that process?
0: Yeah, so um, I think at at NZGL we're very lucky in that we have an end-to-end service delivery model where we can provide the project design advice up front to someone like Peter who doesn't know perhaps what he wants to do or how he wants to, to get there. We can generate the data then um, we can take that data and perform some of the analysis that's required perhaps to assemble that genome or to map it to a reference genome to start understanding some of the changes that make that genome perhaps a little bit special compared to to other ones or understanding some of the changes that have occurred in populations that that someone might be be interested in. So we don't just stop at at giving Peter a hard drive anymore with a a whole bunch of data on it. We can actually take that and, and hopefully give him something far more meaningful
3: this is a massive issue and i have had the hard drive dropped <laughs> off uh, in the past and uh, and been left sitting there well you know we've got a massive amount of information how how do we deal with this now things are much better and people have started to realize and how how to deal with the data and how to turn it into useful things so we have lots of models we can follow so, for example, with the common wasp genome, the challenge is that when we sequence it, it comes out in tiny little chunks, and we need to take all those tiny little chunks and somehow stick them together to understand the chromosomes of this of this beastie. And that's a very technically and computationally difficult thing to do. And there are programs that you can use to do that and and um we've worked with nzgl to get them to do all the hard work and trying to work out the best way of approaching that particular genome and it turns out that actually the way to approach that genome was different from many other genomes and so it was great to have that um i guess we call bioinformatics expertise but really computing expertise to be able to turn that massive information into something which at least is now in a position where i can look at it and say okay well there's a gene there that i'm interested in and and we can move ahead with understanding the biology i think that genome sequencing now is really just run the machine and it's the how do we deal with all that enormous amount of data and how do we deal with it in a way that makes some sense and how do we deal with it in a way that we can tell people how good it is right we need to under, be able to understand the, the quality of that data and whether you can trust it or not
0: the approaches for, for the common wasp would be quite different to the approaches for tuatara, for example, um, given the differences in the genome sizes and complexity. So, as well as making sure that we are we're providing Peter with that trusted data, we're also testing different approaches to make sure that we have selected the best one. Have you, in the past, gone overseas to do this kind of work?
3: I first got involved in genome sequencing and. In- in 2004 and at that point we didn't have next generation sequencing and so we sequenced the honeybee genome who were involved in the group who sequenced the honeybee genome and that was several million dollars in the end and it it was all done uh, in a human genome sequencing center so once all those machines that sequenced the human genome had finished they looked around for things to sequence and the honeybee was one of the things that they thought oh let's have a crack at that I've often been involved in the back end of this, of actually taking the assembled genome sequence and trying to understand the biology of it, and so we've been involved in the genome sequences of aphids, and more recently uh, wood wasps, and turnip sawflies, and the brown marmorated stink bug, and a whole bunch of different insects where we can add some value in kind of understanding the genome from our point of view as developmental geneticists. So we've done a lot of that work overseas, but... In the recent past, it's become clear that actually we're getting uh, faster service, we're getting better data, and we're getting um, an interaction where we can say, look, this hasn't worked very well, what what can we do to change it, which isn't available with overseas groups. And so when in the past we've been sequencing genomes mainly in the U.S. and dealing with a a group of people who are interested in, in insect genomics in the U.S., um, now we're sequencing the genomes here and putting that data in with our groupings in the US so that, that they're getting a, a crack at it as well. So it's, uh, collaboration has, has sort of changed a little bit that actually now we're doing the sequencing ourselves.
4: My name's Aaron Jeffs. I work in the uh, Otago Genomics Facility and um, I'm one of the people that uh, process samples for sequencing on our next-generation sequencing platforms.
2: This is the heart of where it all happens.
4: It so is. tell me what you've got in the it room. Is. So we uh, have sequencing machines from the company called Illumina. Illumina tends to dominate the sequencing market worldwide at the moment. And we have two machines that we can use in here.
2: And these are pretty valuable machines?
4: These are, yeah. So they cost upwards um, of a million dollars each. And the consumables cost to actually run them is quite high as well. So it costs about twenty-five, 000, thirty thousand $30,000 just to turn the machines on.
2: So what form do the samples arrive in? Are they stored in a kind of liquid or...?
4: Yeah, so it depends on uh, whether it's DNA or RNA, which is the two main types of nucleic acids that people send us. They'll both be liquid. They'll both come in a little little tube that holds ideally about one and a half mils of fluid, but most of the time there's much less than that in the tube. So yeah, so they send them either um, on, on ice or on ice packs for DNA or on dry ice for RNA samples, which are a little bit more susceptible to to environmental effects and degradation and what have you. Then what happens? We have to create what are called libraries, and that's because the instruments that we use from Illumina um, are based around a technology that is of what's called short-read sequencing. So let's take a human genome, which is about 3 billion base pairs long, the individual components of, of DNA, the nucleotides, or base pairs, the ACGs and T's, about 3 billion of those, but that's way too big to be able to sequence. There are um, technologies around for doing what's called long-read sequencing, so you can sequence in one long, continuous strand um, for many thousands of bases, even tens of thousands of bases continuously, but that technology is not as readily, readily available as this short-read technology that we have. And the error the in that data is a little bit higher, so people will often try and combine long read stuff and short read stuff. But what we have to do is we have to take the DNA samples let's use DNA as an example and we have to chop it up into smaller fragments. We chop it up into hopefully random fragments that then each get individually sequenced on the machine. And by short fragments I mean around three or four hundred base pairs long. And we read either end of those and on these machines we can read in 125 bases on either end of a four or five hundred, or say three to five hundred base pair fragment, and because these are randomly fragmented bits of DNA, they should potentially all overlap. So there's clever software out there for um, taking these individual small fragments of DNA uh, and then finding where they overlap and stitching them all back together into one long continuous piece of DNA. So we take our DNA we use a technique called sonication, which uses sound waves to smash the DNA up into smaller smaller pieces. And we can do that in a very controlled way. So if somebody wants shorter fragments of DNA, we can dial in the machine to do that. If they want longer fragments, we can do that. Once we've smashed the DNA up into smaller pieces that are of a suitable size to go on our instruments for sequencing, we then need to add some special sequences to the end of those fragments to allow them to actually be sequenced on the machines. And then we put them onto something which is called a flow cell, which is just a little glass cell. Two layers of glass with air in between, which lets us flow what are now called the DNA libraries that we've made from the DNA samples. It allows us to flow them over what we call a lawn of DNA fragments that capture the DNA library that we've made. And it anchors them in place. And so in terms of the numbers of fragments that we're looking at, our flow cells have what's called eight lanes on them, and each lane we can sequence about 200 million different DNA fragments in parallel at one time. Once the flow cells are actually prepared and loaded onto the instruments, each DNA fragment is then visualised using fluorescence. So the sequencing machines themselves are just big automated fluidics and chemistry and cameras and imaging solutions and they need to keep track of changes in fluorescence for well, almost a billion little DNA fragments all at the same time so that's the advantage of this technology and it allows us to instead of just sequence one DNA fragment at a time we can sequence many hundreds of millions of DNA fragments at a time and a strength of that is that we can individually what's called barcode different samples so that is different samples from one um, researcher or investigator. So they can say, I've got 12 different experiments that I want to look at, or I've got um, 20 different organisms that I want to look at, but I want to be able to sequence them all at once and pull them apart so we can individually barcode them. So it means that when we run these machines, we can have multiple samples from multiple investigators all running at the same time. And that can all be pulled apart using software after the run is finished.
2: Describing them as lanes it makes me think a little bit like an international airport when you arrive after an overseas trip and you you get channeled into all those different lanes
4: yeah. at passport controls. The fossil I'm holding is the size of a microscope slide, which is about sort of three inches by one inch in, in old terms. Yeah, and it's divided up into eight little lanes, eight little sections running down the length of it, and these little um, holes at the top and bottom of each lane, which allows liquid to come in and come out again. So the system just as it needs to, as it goes through all of its cycles of sequencing, pumps different chemicals over here, does some imaging, pumps some more chemicals, does some imaging, so it's just cycles of the same thing um, over and over and over again until uh, it's uh, reached our desired sequencing length, which is about 125 cycles, about each cycle corresponds to one extra nucleotide that's been read, and uh, it's just rinse and repeat over and over and over again.
2: How long does it take for a run to go through?
4: So one of our what are called high output runs on these machines takes about five or six days. We can run on two machines, two what are called flow cells at a time, um, so we can ge- generate a lot of data in a short period of time. And by a lot of data, I mean about four terabytes of data per run.
2: So the impression I get is very much that this stage of the process is actually quite straightforward. You know, As long as the people have thought clearly about what it is that they are wanting to find out, what are the questions they're asking, yeah. they've collected good samples for you, this step is quite easy.
4: Yes, yep,
2: yep. Can you deal with ancient DNA as well as modern DNA?
4: Yes, we can, yep.
2: So we quite
4: regularly run samples for the ancient DNA labs around the country, and particularly at Otago. In fact, we've just, this week, have been dealing with some ancient DNA stuff. In that case though, because of the risks of contamination around ancient DNA, the investigators will actually just give us the the libraries to run on the sequencer.
2: So once you've finished your run here, then it's a case of saying to the person, "Congratulations, you're now the proud owner of a vast amount of data."
4: Yep, yep, pretty much. So the data that the machines generate is large because it's all image-based. So there's all this imaging goes on on a microscopic level. Those images then need to be converted into, you know, an ACG or a T. What do the different colours that are appearing in these images actually mean? And also, being an image isn't useful for people to work with. So Although the amount of data coming off the machines is large, it ends up just being text files at the end, which are a lot smaller. So instead of being terabytes worth of data, though, if you're doing some um, ancient DNA stuff, you might only have maybe 5 or 10 gigabytes of data. If you're doing some whole genome sequencing, doing you know some pine tree or something like that, and you need lots and lots and lots of sequencing, because pine is a large genome. It's about six, seven times the size of the human genome we might be having to give someone near eight or nine hundred gigabytes of data.
2: So what kind of things have you been sequencing in the last few weeks?
4: Well, there's been various ancient DNA stuff, not just humans, but other animals. People have been wanting to look at gene expression in um, human cells. We have been doing a lot of small microbial genomes. So people, you know, doing sort of 40 or 50 genomes in one lane of our flow cell. The uptake and application of this type of technology to an expanding range of things that are important to New Zealand has definitely been pleasing to see. Given that we work in a service facility, it's nice to think that we're not just, you know, doing the same old thing all the time. So whether it's uh, improving livestock breeding or uh, looking at how best to preserve endangered species investigators want to give it a go, then we're always happy to help them out.
5: My name is Dr. Shane Sturrock, and I am the system administrator for New Zealand Genomics Limited's BioIT platform.
2: What's your role?
5: I administer the Linux environment that the team uses. So, all the data that uh, you've already seen that comes off the sequencing machines gets loaded onto our computer system, and there it goes through quality control and um, any further analysis that needs to be done as well. And we also have the, uh, the system available as a, as a remote environment. So people who work for New Zealand Genomics Limited are spread throughout the various universities and other sites in New Zealand. Uh, so having a computer system that's, that's all located down in Otago uh, that they can all log into and can access uh, from wherever they are uh, is the ideal And so I run that system, even though I'm based in Auckland, um, I actually log into the system down in Otago. I think I've only ever seen it physically in the flesh once myself, uh, but it's not really a problem because the people down at uh, Spark, they run the system for us as far as hosting the physical environment, and I'm responsible for the software stack. So that's all the bioinformatics tools that the team use and the uh, graphic user interface the basic operating system that we're running. And we're running a um, a CentOS system, which is a uh, enterprise grade Linux. Uh, The other thing that we need to provide for them is some pretty big memory machines because a lot of the work that we do in bioinformatics requires an awful lot of RAM, It's not a particularly high-performance computing type of environment, so we don't have a lot of CPUs. We just have a lot of RAM and a lot of storage. Currently, we've got about 150 terabytes of disk directly attached to the environment, plus, of course, there's tape backups made of all of that data as well. The important thing when you're dealing with large amounts of data as we are is that the the data and the computing facilities are all in one place. So it's, it's important for performance reasons that large volumes of data and large amounts of compute capacity are mated together.
6: So my name is Mick Black and I am a bioinformatician slash statistician in the Department of Biochemistry at University of Otago.
2: Okay Mick, bioinformatics, what is it?
6: Bioinformatics is one of those weird words that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It's quite a broad range of, uh, of skills and techniques uh, which really relates to um, the computational processing of data. Uh, for what we're talking about uh, in terms of genomic data, we often think about uh, algorithms that can process large amounts of DNA sequence data uh, and turn that information into something useful that a biologist can um, gain some understanding uh, out of.
2: Aaron showed me through the process and kept saying how much data he generated, how many like, numbers or letters, really, he was generating out of it.
6: The letters that get generated um, obviously relate to the genome of the organism being sequenced. How those come out of the machine are in, in short, uh, short lengths or short reads, as we call them, of around 100 bases or 100, 100 letters at a time. But essentially, we get billions of these reads of around 100 letters in each, and the algorithms we're using are designed to help us piece those back together into some sort of sensible sequence when the data comes out of the the sequencing machines it is fairly raw in that it is really just like a very long file full of these little short 100-base sequences, and you get the sequence information and you get some quality information. And the quality information is basically telling you how likely is it the machine made a mistake um, in reading that particular base. So for every base that's read, and there are 3 billion bases in the human genome, and when we're doing medical-grade sequencing, we might read each of those 30 times or 100 times, which is what produces all the data, there's a certain chance uh, for each of those bases that's being read that the machine makes a mistake. And so it tells us what base it thinks it is and how likely it is that it got it right. And so we have to take that information uh, and we do some cleaning up. And so if we, if we feel that um, the, the chance of being right is too low, then we might trim those bases off and get rid of those and not use them in our analysis. So there's an initial, uh, really, a quality assessment step or a quality control step that we go through to try and clean up our data, so we throw away the the stuff that we think is not worth using.
2: And then in terms of analysis, does it depend very much what questions Peter was posing?
6: Yes. Peter's wanting to assemble uh, the genome uh, of the weevil that he's interested in. And so that's actually one of the, one of the really challenging things in bioinformatics, which is taking these, uh, in some cases, billions of very short reads and figuring out how to stick them back together in the same order that they originally were in the genome before they were chopped up and put in the machine. Uh, so that is hugely computationally challenging uh, and actually needs uh, very clever algorithms and a reasonable amount of computational resource to actually just be able to run the program. So you might run that program for a week, and it will produce a genome assembly, and while it would be nice to have your genome assembled back into the correct number of bits it started as, which is the number of chromosomes you started with, in practice it will actually be hundreds or possibly even thousands of discrete little chunks that often you actually have to do additional work in the lab. So it's not necessarily just a matter of running that program once and going, oh, right, we've got an assembly now. It's running the program, okay, we've got an assembly what could we change in our program settings to make that assembly even better?
2: So it's a bit of a journey of discovery.
6: It is, and I think uh, that's actually something that, I guess, defines a good bioinformatician. It's having done that a whole lot of times with a whole lot of different organisms and getting a feel for what's going to work in different situations. Uh, And so that's what makes a bioinformatician valuable is they already have insight into which program to use, which settings to use, what's going to make a difference in this sort of situation based on all their prior experience.
2: And the statistics you use, again, that just depends on the questions that are being asked?
6: Yeah. I guess there are traditional statistical techniques and and really concepts. And uh, one of the the concepts and statistics that comes through time and again is, could I have got this result by chance? So if I've done an experiment and I've seen something that looks interesting – Is this a real result, or could I have just gotten this by chance, and it really means nothing? And it's a really simple question, but depending on the work you've done, um, how you've generated those results, what context you're, you're working in, it can actually be quite a hard question to answer. So the question stays the same, but the tools you use to answer that question might actually be quite different across different contexts. So that keeps it really interesting.
2: So the thing that's really struck me about stepping through the different stages at New Zealand Genomics Limited of getting a sequence sequenced, is there's a huge amount of data involved, and lots and lots of analysis involved. I mean, the actual lab side of it's really small.
6: I guess I'm probably biased, because most of the work I do involves data analysis, but certainly uh, the field as a whole is really moving towards a more data-centric model, where um, large amounts of data are being generated, and the is not necessarily being generated within uh, you know, an investigator's own lab. So Peter wants data generated. He doesn't send it through to his lab for people to do experiments. He sends it to a company, uh, and they process, process the samples for him and generate data and um, either send it back to him or analyse it and send it back results. And I think that's, that's becoming far more common in the field with a lot of labs actually outsourcing the experimental work, or at least the initial experimental work, the genomics, uh, and then bringing back that data into the lab, whether it's raw data that they analyse themselves or taking the analysis that's been done by bioinformatics teams like NZGL uh, and then trying to integrate those results back into their own work in the lab and so what we're seeing for people who work in the labs is this increasing importance of actually having some of those data analysis skills and being able to manipulate the data perform maybe not the, the really complex analysis that the bioinformatics team is performing but some of the some of the more simple analyses and some of the exploratory analyses that are more at the statistics end of, of, of things, the stuff that I do so being able to explore their data, being able to make really nice plots of it to help visualise it, help them with their understanding and really get into it and help them ask the next questions that drive the next experiments that they're going to do in the lab themselves.
1: And that was biostatistician Mick Black. And you also heard from geneticist Peter Dearden, Otago Genomics Facility Manager Becky Laurie, and genomics specialist Aaron Jeffs, who are all at the University of Otago. You also heard from University of Auckland IT expert Shane Starrock, and collectively they're
2: all part of New Zealand Genomics Limited. Thanks for listening to this Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our web page, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World.